forever. Dog. It is not that I am lazy or won't do my research. If I had been involved in the tear in the space-time continuum, I would have fucking been able to quote you the physics and the quantum theory behind it, because that is how rigorous I am. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or that one episode of Weeds where I judge a butter sculpture contest. Our guest this week is Sonia Walger from Lost, from For All Mankind, from Tell Me You Love Me, Mind of a Married Man. We talk about all that. We talk about her her start doing amateur dramaticals at Oxford. We talk a little bit about uh, the delicacy with which uh, they had to approach sex scenes on Tell Me You Love Me. And uh, there's a spoiler in here about how babies are made. So, you know. Heads up, maybe fast forward through that part if you haven't had the talk with your parents yet. Please welcome Sonia Walker. Hi. Hello, friend. It's so nice to see your face. It's so nice to see yours. I'm so glad you were able uh, to do this. This will be... um... Well, I squeezed you in, man. I mean, I am slammed at the moment. I can barely breathe for, uh, you know, set life. But anyway, here we are. (laughs) Well, look, I happen to pick a lull in the industry to start this. Uh, This was not an accident. Uh, I have, uh, we have been not good, not just good at scheduling. We've been very fortunate with our rescheduling. <laughs> like, oh, we have to push a couple days. And most guests are like, that's fine. Yeah, pretty much okay by me. I'm yeah. staring into a yawning chasm of unemployment. So there's no rush. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm so glad uh, you you uh, found the time. It's funny because you say this, but I've been doing, before I, I, I do any of these episodes, I hold a sort of uh, festival of my guests' work. So mm. to my mind, you're the busiest person in Hollywood this past week. Um, That's right. That's right. I've been, let's I've been let's leave it at that. Yeah. I've been covering 20 years of, <laughs> of your career, and it's been, uh, it's been really fun. I'm so sorry. Anyway. Well no, done. we'll Good have work. none of that. We'll have none of that. Um, but you know what? What it, what freaks me out though is that I've known you for years personally, and I know actually precious little about your your backstory. You you were I know you were were born in London. Did you grow up yep. there? Yep, grew up in London. Went to boarding school, aged eleven. Ah. So essentially left home, aged eleven, and never really went back. Uh, then I went to Oxford. Thought about going to drama school got into Oxford and thought oh well I should probably do that instead so you 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 um and watch this watch me assimilate you Mm, read mm. English at Oxford get you I read English at Oxford uh yes that weird verb that you use for even if you read mathematics at Oxford you 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 read it uh so yes I read English at Oxford which I just loved and uh in essence have sort of been struggling to recreate those three years for the rest of my life I think so so we did that and then uh I did a play a term while I was there you can't read uh theatre at Oxford because they don't 
consider it an academic discipline, which is a whole nother podcast. But anyway, so no, it's this one. It's actually this one. It's, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> no, you're you're mistaken. It's actually this podcast. You're on the right one. Um, uh, okay. Is that? Um, I mean, we're dealing with a, a a school that could theoretically be called ancient, mm. um, and they still don't have a, a theater. Uh, a theater. Here I go. I'm going to get all American. They still don't have a theater major. No, they do not. They do not. So there is uh, a whole separate institution that has nothing to do with the university, which is the Oxford Drama School. Uh, and then you are welcome to participate in all the amateur dramatics that you desire. But to my knowledge, there is still no theatre degree to be done at Oxford, um, which is interesting, given that Yale uh, has managed to incorporate it and others have. I don't know where I stand on this because truthfully my experience of Oxford was so extraordinary and so, it's funny, Davey and I were talking about it just the other night and despite... This is your the, husband, the writer Davey Holmes. My husband, the writer Davey Holmes. And despite the fact we've been together all these years, we've never really, I've never really sort of talked about it other than in these glowing terms. And we had a friend over who was asking what it is about Oxford that is so sort of extraordinary and I was saying that it's the way it the way it teaches you to look at the world or uh, a piece of work or a, a, a question I, that it actually doesn't matter what subject you read at the end of the day unless it's medicine and you're planning to be a doctor in which case I advise actually studying it but but otherwise it, it's just the mindset that it teaches you that's of such use and value I think the willingness to sort of interrogate something and look at it from a different point of view and turn it upside down or give it a really close reading and the tutorial system where you have this extraordinary sort of Socratic one-on-one -on -one dialogue with these tutors twice a week just and these are your the, these are the the dons of which I have these read. Are the dons of which you have read exactly. Uh, it's very Harry Potter, the whole thing, but just <laughs> smaller. Um, anyway, it's it's an amazing thing, and so part of me feels oddly like maybe it doesn't need a theatre degree. Maybe it is just enough to learn how to be rigorous in your spirit of inquiry and apply that to whatever you go ahead and do. Um, do you find yourself using the skill set? in your acting work? Yes, I do. I mean, all the time, all the time. First of all, I'm using it nonstop at the moment because I'm about to finish my own podcast, Bookish, and where I invite interesting people to talk to me about the five books that have shaped them most. So not their favorites or their desert island ones, but the ones that actually change them formatively, like how they think, how they feel. I'm not, I'm not just saying this. It's a great, uh, it's a great podcast. It's really, um, it's really incisive. Um, uh, it's, um, you get a, a wide breadth of guests on from actors to our mayor Garcetti. It's, it's a mm -hmm. really, it's a fun listen. Oh, thank you, darling. I'm thank you. It's, it's, uh, it genuinely is such a pleasure to do. And and I'm about to finish season three and I have such a cool, uh, even wider than ever lineup of this season, an astronaut who talks about the book he took to the International Space Station. I have uh, the guy who created Grand Theft Auto. I have Bill Macy. I have the woman who broke the Boko Haram story about the Nigerian girls who were abducted from their school. So yeah. it's from actors to activists to astronauts. It's really fun. Um, so to go back to your question, my Oxford sort of rigor uh, 
has never come in more handy because like you immersing in a guest every week, I take each guest every week and immerse in their five books and my guest's biography and then try and sound in any way knowledgeable about what we're discussing. So uh, it's been invaluable and so comforting oddly to realize that my work ethic despite years of having a fucking smartphone is still intact that I can actually concentrate on something for more than five minutes it's just these days I can do an instacart shop and pick up kids from camp at the same time but it's I'm I'm grateful to uh the the sort of rigor that that Oxford instilled does it do I use it in my acting work yes although it's usually overkill (laughs) more than the part calls for or requires (laughs) um i have a tendency to sort of work too hard in all things i think so sometimes it's not not necessarily to my benefit sometimes i could afford to be more relaxed with it when you were uh doing plays at oxford uh, well first off what did you do what what plays did you do i did heartbreak house by george manage shaw i did um uh, what else did we do? Look Back in Anger. Uh, uh, we did The Cherry Orchard. We did... Um, yeah, you see, this is where I'm a useless guest because I have one of the more impoverished memories you will have come across. I literally can't remember what I did yesterday. You're going to no, quote you just... job, jobs at me that I'm I'm going to ask you when I did them. So You're not... You're... No, you're doing fine. You just named three... <laughs> classic plays and and that's that's uh you're you're, do. you're doing great what um um <laughs> was there a moment in one of those where you thought oh what if i did this for a living i think it it was um it was probably it was probably doing heartbreak house i think um where i definitely wasn't any good but i remember feeling I just remember going to rehearsals and thinking, I don't think life gets any better than this. Like, I've just spent all day in the Radcliffe camera, which is this exquisite jewellery box of a library that was is only for the English department faculty. I've spent all day in what's fondly known as the Rad Cam. I probably quickly made out with my cute boyfriend and grabbed a bacon sandwich, and now I'm walking into rehearsals for a play that me and my friends are casting, directing, producing, and putting on. I'm not sure it get. I mean, I, I remember acutely having the feeling of not necessarily I could make a career out of this, but my God, what a life this would be if this if this were if this were life. One of those um, great moments where you're you're like, oh, I am nostalgic for this right now. Right now, right, this is happening, exactly. and I, I, have, I have jumped ahead, and I am exactly. already treasuring this memory while it is going on. That's exactly right. I mean, I was basically born to be forty six. I really was. That was <laughs> just where I've inevitably been heading my whole life. I think. So, so you 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 leave Oxford, and was there there is so much pressure? Not pressure, but it's just sort of the norm for British actors to go to drama school. Mm. Um, I skipped it. I got this amazing bypass and uh, I got this strangely lucky break, basically, where in my year at Oxford, there were three of us who very clearly all wanted to go on and do this professionally. And it had become clearer and clearer as we'd gone through the three years that there were sort of three of us that jostled for the big roles and wanted to do this for for a thing. And... Um, one of the three is an actor called Orlando Wells, whose mother is the actress Susanna York. And oh, wow. 
Yeah. So Susanna directed us in Look Back in Anger. Oh, my God. And uh, me and Orlando and an actress called Amelia Fox, who works and works and works in England, she'd be on your show if she's much more famous than I am. But back at home, she's a big deal. So me, Millie and Orlando did Look Back in Anger, directed by Susanna York. And because it was Susanna, we were able to ask a bunch of quite significant agents up to Oxford in order to watch the show. It became a miniature showcase for us. And we all got very lucky and we all got agents from it and got our choice of agents, honestly, on the back of this show, really thanks to Susanna's beautiful direction. Um, So I got to sit in a pub and pick between two of the biggest agents in London and it's been downhill from there. I mean, it really has. I, it's just, it was, it was such a sort of odd moment of feeling like, oh, that's right. This is just how life goes. You work really hard and then you get what you want. And it was just so misleading. In your early twenties. Yes, exactly. Because also life had led me to believe that, right? I'd been to these very academic institutions that had, you know, instilled in me the belief that if you did work really hard and applied yourself, you could get those A-levels and then you could get to Oxford and then, you know, you could get the degree that you wanted. And now, sure enough, here came the lovely agents. Well, that was great. So I have this big fancy agent who was Kate Winslet's agent at the time. And it felt like, here we are. I am ready. Uh, whatever Kate's not doing, I'm pretty much available for. So just send it my way. And holy shit, what a fucking tumbling free fall like Lucifer it was to leave. To just feel like, oh, wait, what do you mean I didn't get the job? I mean, I just remember the absolute disbelief of the first batch of auditions coming in. And because you're because you're a Brit, your, English, your auditions range from a radio play to the new BBC drama to the latest working title movie. But unlike America, we don't have the volume that you have. We just have right. many more disciplines that you can flexibly work between. You could do a butter advert. Exactly, for instance. Um, and uh, I remember not getting any of them and just just the, the like baffled, utterly baffled. Nothing in my life had prepared me for not getting a job. Nothing. Uh, I, I was just brutally privileged and a, a combination of, you know, middle class privilege and work ethic that had just led me to believe that this was how it went. I'm going to clarify real quick uh, the British meaning of middle class mm. vis-a-vis the American meaning mm-hmm. of middle class. My experience, if I'm correct, is that British middle class tends to mean of some wealth, but not aristocracy. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. All right. Middle class yes. here means sort of a more suburban ranch home kind of... Uh, right, right, uh, right. Yeah. Sure. Let's get specific. Upper middle class. Upper okay. middle class. We'll, okay. we'll give you that, right? I so, appreciate you uh, uh, translating from the metric no, system. No, 100%. I, uh... I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, yes. So anyway, I, well, that was just a long-winded way of saying I was just not ready to not succeed. I was not ready. And it took me, it's still taking me a long time to get my head around the idea of, of oh, this is not where I thought it would be. So when um, you did yeah. finally start working... Uh, and pardon me, I've got my chronology off here. Is it Midsummer Murders? Is it is it Good Night, Sweetheart? It did. I did lots of theatre first. So my okay. first my first gigs were uh, I did three plays at the um, 
at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, which is a lovely, lovely regional theatre, but in way in the north and uh, not the West End, which was where I was surely supposed to be working. Um, so well, clearly, uh, there was some sort of clerical error. <laughs> some, some ghastly mix-up had happened there. Uh, no, I, I did Sheffield, which was uh, fantastic and and a great sort of repertory theatre beginning, and then started with little jobs on the BBC, Good Night Sweetheart, Midsummer Murders, all you know. Your standard guest star, uh, you know, wide-eyed, which I was never terribly good at, but, but you know, nice girlfriend or hapless murder victim. Um, yeah, your normal start of just sort of pedestrian theatre. Uh, Midsummer TV. Murders strikes me as um, almost a... Um, it's hard because, again, it's a question of volume, as you said, but it almost strikes me as a uh, sort of a British CSI or law and order in the sense that every actor worth their salt in the UK has done an episode or it's ex- two. It's exactly that. It's CSI, but in tweed and in a cottage <laughs> with a pipe. And then you've got it. That's what it is. <laughs> but it's just, I mean, it's on every third British resume I exactly. see has a Midsummer Murder. Uh, um, and I, I actually, myself, I did a, a few years ago, I did a Death in Paradise like five years ago, which is the sort of newer version okay. of everyone gets gets flown to Guadeloupe for uh, a few days to mm. uh, to uh, be a witness for whatever hapless British uh, sure. detective is, uh, quote unquote, stuck in the Caribbean. <laughs> So at what point, at what point do you make the decision, I've done as much as I can here, it, it might be time to, to go to the United States? Oh, I didn't make the decision. The decision was made for me. So I I would still otherwise be in England, sort of um, trying desperately to get a table read at the Royal Court otherwise. But right, what happens is I do this in the American film um, called The Search for John Gissing. And a guy called Mike Binder is directing it and starring in it. And it's fully cast. I think they've already started shooting and Liz Hurley uh, drops out. And um, nobody is clear how this happens, but I get the role. And I play uh, Alan Rickman's wife, girlfriend in it. Okay. And... It's got an extraordinary cast. Juliet Stevenson is in it, Alan Rickman, uh, Janine Garofalo, Mike Binder, and me playing a, a, a sort of imposter who poses as a singing nun at one point. Anyway, sure. much to say about that particular movie. I'm okay with the fact that nobody's seen it. I really am. Anyway, I was unable to find it. That's absolutely fine. Uh, I could find Eisenstein, which I think you did when you were still. <laughs> I did that back in the day in the Ukraine. I know I was st- I was still sort of flopping between Sheffield Crucible Theatre and hoping someone would find me on the BBC. But yes, in the meantime, I did Eisenstein with Simon McBurney, which was an amazing, amazing thing to work with him. Uh, anyway, I do um, this American movie, The Search for John Gissing. It's all done. He packs off and goes back to LA. I go back to lying in bed, trying not to get bed sores, trying not to be unemployed for any longer 
And I audition for, this was one of your questions that I was given a heads up would come, uh, the Bridget Jones, Bridget Jones's diary, but whether it was the first one or the second one, I couldn't tell you. But anyway, it's a Bridget Jones and I'm so right for one of the tiny roles in it and I don't get it, but I've, they've had me on hold for a long, long time and I am inconsolable just like that was it there was my big chance they make one movie a year in England and I'm not in it and this is a disaster so in all of this I get a call was it was it oh you don't know if it was the first so it wasn't the, the uh, potty mouth friend um whose name I can't remember what is that I, character's name I can't anyway. remember like I say okay. useless guest don't remember anything <laughs> don't remember the jobs I did even less the ones I didn't get but I do remember this because I remember languishing feeling like that was it that my ship has sailed it's all over I'm just gonna go do something else and, and how old are you when you're giving up I'm giving up at the solid age of 25. I mean, I've really yeah. given it. I've given it yeah. a straight four years and I'm, I'm done. That's usually what it takes. If you can't do it in four years, <laughs> wrap it up. Yeah, that's... So... If, my get, if my listeners take anything else away from this podcast, <laughs> it's that they should probably call it a day after four years. Go ahead. Um, so I get a call very late at night because Mike Binder knows not about a nine hour time difference it seems and he rings and says uh he says to me I've got a pilot and I, I want you to read for for uh, I want you to read for it's a pilot for HBO and I want you to put yourself on tape for a role in it I understand one in all of those words I don't know what any of those words mean I don't know what they mean in any kind of combination but they, I they don't even really they, they don't really even have a pilot system in Zero pilot system. Britain. Zero no, pilot you, system. You show up, you pitch, and they go, "Lovely, we will buy six episodes, and that will be the entirety of the series." That, that will be that will be three seasons. Thank you very yes. much indeed. Uh, pilots fly you to America. Pilots are not anything that we make ever at all. I've never heard of HBO. Just sounds like a rude word. I don't know what any of it is. So, I but I I put myself on. I get the script, and the script is about a man who is married who has fantasies about his hot girl for a hot secretary. In my innocence, I tape the role of the secretary because that is historically what I have been playing. And also in the movie that I've just done for him, I just played the hot thing. So I think so I gaily put myself on tape and then he calls me back and goes, no, 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 you need to tape for the wife. The wife who is just this nondescript put upon long suffering. So I take a deep breath and I nurse my injured pride and I go back and put myself on tape for the wife anyway I get the call saying you're down to the last three we want to fly you in to do to to test you know to test for HBO so I don't so I fly and I go and it's amazing and it's an adventure and it's a huge thing and I keep telling myself even if it's just this it's so fun that it's just this it's so fun that it's just I really fucking hope I get it but it's so fun that it's just this and I'm alone in a hotel in Century City on the Avenue of the Stars which again I have to take as a sign that I'm on that fucking street and I'm alone in this hotel room just rehearsing this scene over and over and over again because I don't know anyone in LA I haven't got a friend and I, to this day, think about what um, the poor room service people must have thought hearing this English voice over and over saying, <laughs> take me up the arse then. If that's what you want to do, just bend me over the table and take me up the arse. Because that is what the fucking scene is, right? It's the wife saying, if you're going to have all these fantasies, act them out on me. That's the scene I had to audition with. Anyway, 
I get it. Which I get is, the... it. Which is a, a, just a hop, skip, and a jump from Heartbreak House, really. Very similar. It's again, as I say, the Oxford career has prepared me for all of this. So anyway, so so I go in and I and I get it and I and I get the role and we do the pilot and then it gets very quickly picked up to series and I never went back. I mean, I went back to England to sort of gather my books, but I just stayed here. That was it. Um, you did two seasons, three seasons? Two, two seasons of Married Man. We were picked up for a third, and then in the end they didn't do it. But, um, yeah, it was. It, it's still a show that I feel ferociously proud of. I really do. I haven't watched it for years, but I, I it was it was so brave, I think. It really was, and it would be cancelled before it could be even pitched today. It was the heyday of, of uh, HBO, which in some ways was amazing because it felt very special to be part of it. And in sure. other ways, it was very hard to be what felt like the ugly stepchild uh, on a show of, you know, Band of Brothers, uh, Sex and the City, Sopranos, Oh, and Mind of the Married Man, this quiet little ugly stepchild that we'll keep in the corner. That felt like our stasis. But looking back on it, I'm... I'm um, I sort of am floored that that was how I got here and, and that was my entree into into the world. It was great, really great. You're, you're British on the show. Had you considered doing an American accent for it? Did that come up at all? No, I asked to do her English. So when I, ta- when I went, when Mike came back to me and said, will you take the wife? I said, only if I can make her British. And he was like, oh, yeah, great, do it. Uh, so it always gives you an advantage because you're usually, or in this day and age, that, that's not true. But at that time, you were probably the only Brit. So that automatically made you stand out. And uh, to be an English wife asking to take it up the ass, I think was also appealing. So <laughs> I, I, it carried advantages. It's my, it's my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, you mentioned something in your description of that character that was a trend in your career for about... 10 years and now is no longer so where you were playing the very reliable steady mate of a tempestuous unreliable guy hmm. Hmm. um and i and i tell i mean tell me i'm wrong but mind of a married man tell me you love me hmm where Adam Scott's flitting all over the place and, mm. and repeatedly doesn't want to have sex with you and and lost, mm. where, I mean, he's, well, he's lost. He's lost. Um, uh, there is a real uh, sense of, oh, we need a, a, a port in the storm here mm. uh, for this, uh, this untamed stallion of a guy. Mm. Get me Sonia Walger. Mm. Um, what, um, why do you think they came to you for that? <laughs> Why were they hunting I, you down for that? Yes, it's interesting. I I think as I say, I'm only partly joking when I say I've sort of been waiting to be 46 my whole life. I, I've never played an ingenue. I've never played a wide-eyed girl, really, honestly. I, I joke about that in my earlier stuff, but um, I don't bring that. I don't have that. I've, I've, I came out quite in a sort of old soul, I think. So, um, and you know, for young women, there are tropes, as there are, I'm sure, for young men. But as young women, you're either... There's there's more for young women, definitely. uh, Right, so you're you're either the sort of put-upon virgin, or you're the slut, or you're the reliable heart of gold. And that, I think, is where I fell 
for a while. Um, and I think, interestingly, I only shook it off uh, sort of striding into my 40s after kids. I'm going to, I've I've taken note of that. There right. is There has been a shift in the last like seven or so years of your career that is striking. And we, we absolutely will get to that. Yeah. Um, uh before we get to to Lost, let's talk for a moment about Tell Me You Love Me. So you got HBO was at the time kind of a small family, and they were faith. They were incredibly loyal. They would they would pick people who had been on other shows and put them on. Yeah. Like Adam Scott had had a great run on uh, on Six Feet Under. Yeah, and um, and then he gets this, and and you get this with him, and it is um. Another incredibly challenging show. Yep. Um, I mean, it's so, it's so sexually frank mm. that it's not a question of like it's ahead of its time. Nobody's really doing that right now in 2021. Mm. It it feels way ahead of its time for for 10 years ago. Mm. It's ahead of this time right now. What was that? I mean, you had to know it was going to be sort of a shit show when it went. Not a shit show, but it was going to be controversial when it when it aired. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I knew it going in. I mean, I was the first person cast in that show. and Really? Yeah. And uh, Cynthia Mort and I and Carolyn Strauss had a really intense meeting about it. Carolyn Strauss was running HBO at the time? She was running Erica, exactly. She was, she's now an executive or a produ- executive producer there, but she was running, she was creatively in charge of HBO at the time. And... I'd already had a run-in with HBO because in between Mind of the Married Man and Tell Me You Love Me, I had been offered uh, the role in Rome, and I had turned it down for... Which role? The role that... Uh, Polly Walker's role. The, oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I had auditioned for it. It wasn't a straight offer, but I, and I'd gone through the ropes and done all, jumped through all the hoops, rather, and, and I'd got the role. And then... I turned it down because I felt like the new, <laughs> this is going to sound hilarious now, that the nudity was gratuitous and that it didn't feel part of the storytelling. That I was going to be alone in Rome without my agents, without any form of recourse, and that I was going to be asked to drop a toga at any given moment and not have any way of being in control of that. And we had long discussions uh and in the end, I had to walk away, and I did, because they couldn't offer me any guarantees about it. So cut to two years later, when I get offered Tell Me You Love Me, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, let's do this. It sounds perfect. But also, yeah, no. but I mean, there is a distinction to be made in that the nudity is integral to the story in the Tell story, Me You Love Me. The story of Tell Me You Love Me, or the Carolyn's, my character's story in Tell Me You Love Me, is, is that she, this is a woman trying to get pregnant, and she and her husband want to get pregnant at any cost. And, and I don't know how much our listeners know about this, but that requires sex. Oh, that's a spoiler. I mean, that's just huge. Okay. All right. Well, we'll I'll put a little when when this drops. I'll put a little thing. Just warner, just warning just on to it. make yeah. sure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So so as a result, this couple are under duress, and and they are, and she is uh, deeply anxious and single minded in her pursuit of this. So so theirs is a study of intimacy under enormous duress, and what happens to a sex life under that kind of pressure and so the sex in it to my mind is as eloquent as any scene that has dialogue every single one of those scenes could not be shot another way the story couldn't be told any other way 
uh, it felt, I'm not going to say those scenes were easy to shoot, but I am going to say that I felt utterly uncomplicated uh, about what I, about the story that I was telling in every single one of those scenes. Uh, and that to me made sense emotionally, intellectually, I could square it. Uh, I was also not with anyone at the time, which makes it an awful lot easier when you're not having to come home and tell someone how your day was. Uh, I think was was Adam with his, his Adam wife? was with amazing Naomi, and they just had their first baby. So his <laughs> the poor poor man, and where his head must have been, I dare not know. But luckily, uh, both of us have arguably a very good sense of humor, and that kept us just alive. Was just weeping with laughter all the time all the time it, it would it, it, honestly that that show is unthinkable with anyone other than adam um, oh that's nice to hear yeah so i that was great just great there is a certain choreography to mm. those scenes mm. uh, and i'm wondering these were the days before an intimacy coordinator yes those only appeared two weeks ago i think so yeah those is... are pretty recent they really yeah. are pretty recent and i, I think they're a godsend frankly because anytime uh-huh. i've had to do anything remotely intimate i'm always like i don't want to improvise right this is hellish <laughs> i'd love to be told what to do that would be give me a combination and i will learn it mm-hmm. and yep yep we yep. will kickball change our way into this thing um <laughs> But what, um, so how, how were those done? Because you're right. There is a moment of like, I mean, I, I, we get very technical on this show, but this is the first time we've got technical about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But there is a, there is meaning in the way pants are unbuttoned on that show. Yes, yes, there is. So, so we would talk about, uh, what was not being said in this scene. What is the dynamic of this scene? Who is in charge in this scene? Who wants what out of this moment? What are the beats of, uh, I'm going to call, I need it, I'm ovulating, this is going to happen now. Oh, okay, I agree. Oh my God, do we really have to? I'm fucking tired, I don't want to. Oh, and now I'm into it. Like those, if, if that's the... Uh, orchestral score then how do you that's an arc though that's That's a real arc exactly so that's that to my mind is the arc that belongs if I'm going to be involved in a sex scene that's the arc or an archetype of the arc that belongs in it and that's where every again to my mind that's where every discussion begins right is is what is not being said if this were a spoken scene or a fight or a what would it sound like? And then let's hang movements off that. And uh, and then let's all have some mouthwash. How is that? <laughs> uh, yeah, how are we different at the end of the scene than we when we were going it, into it, as you would any, any it, exchange? Exactly, exactly. That's, I don't know why I feel weirdly soothed by the fact that that's how it was constructed because I, I watch a show like that and I go god that's so nerve-wracking I know it's a closed set but still oh boy but I love knowing that there was that much thought and care going into it yeah we we uh was very very conscious not much is left to chance not much is left to uh, <laughs> wing it just feel feel it <laughs> feel it out why don't you as it were that's uh there's no there's not really any room for that
we can't do this hour without discussing your work on Lost. It has been off the air for a few years now. So I'm going to ask you, mm. did you watch the show? So what's interesting <laughs> is that we're talking about about the level of analysis one brings to the work, one being an Oxford student. Um, that is, but but here's what I always loved about it, and I was a fan of the show. You know this. What I always loved about it is that your character Penny had no fucking idea what was going on anyway. Exactly. So you got Thank away scot free. There you go. There you fucking go. You nailed it. Because therein, it is not that I am lazy or won't do my research. If I had been involved in the tear in the space-time continuum, I would have fucking been able to quote you the physics and the quantum theory behind it because that is how rigorous I am. However... But that is not Penny. <laughs> that is not Penny. Penny patiently waits and waits, not knowing what has happened to her beloved one. So that was what I chose to do, <laughs> was to patiently wait for ABC to ring me and tell me what had happened to my loved one. And then I would fly to Hawaii, sometimes not knowing if the person in the seat next to me was in fact a cast member. <laughs> sometimes only knowing when we both got into the same van at the terminal and saying, oh, That hi. sounds like that actually <laughs> happened. Many times. Who was it? Many okay. times. <laughs> sometimes, maybe, on occasion, I took out my phone and snap photos and sent them to my husband saying, quickly tell me who this is. <laughs> so that he would Google back in LA and send me an answer. I won't give you any names. Anyway, this may or may not have happened, sometimes regularly. Uh, and I was okay with that. I was okay with that because it meant that I gave my most authentic performances of my life on that show, probably because I really didn't know what was happening and I didn't. You know had you you had resting befuddled face. I you had really resting, did. resting befuddled face, and and I really didn't know anyone other than Ian uh, Cusick, who was just lovely and delightful and played Desmond and uh, and he and I. I think felt both oddly as isolated as the other, even though he lived on the island and had moved there with his family. He joined late in the show comparatively. Yeah. So others had already formed their groups and alliances and gangs. And I think any newcomers on that cast, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say this, were treated with some suspicion by the core cast as who are you? Are you coming to take more screen time? We're all getting, you know, a fragment of screen time here how dare this new person come and have more story than i have but again that uh, works though if they're if you're spending the whole time being paranoid of the others then who's more other than guest cast exactly i think you just words that you just used words that relate to the show that i don't know but anyway i think i feel <laughs> <laughs> anyway sure sure yes I'm very, what I'm very good at is just agreeing soundly with anyone that talks about Lost because that, that works well. Well, that is the thing is it is probably, I don't think I'm speaking out term when I suggest it is probably the role for which you are most often recognized. I know, which is why this whole conversation sucks because now I'm sitting here just freely confessing that I didn't watch very much of it. I watched some. You were operating under an assumption that this podcast, which 
has yet to even drop is going to be, you know, this this runaway hit that everyone's going to listen to. Mm. Are there moments where people come up and, God forbid, ask you questions about the show's internal logic? Yeah, yes. Have we met? Oh. This is my whole life. This is my oh, whole God. life. Uh, I just smile and say things like, not Penny's boat. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's great. I find that well. And that but that's fantastic though, because everybody wins, you know. They you know, they you you get out of it, they've heard you utter an iconic line, everybody wins, you know. Everybody wins and nobody knows what a smoke monster is anyway. So I say That's true. That's true. That's fine. Yes. Uh yes. (laughs) Um uh, at, at what point do you, I've got my, I'm getting my chronology a little screwy here. Is Lost before or after you do Frost Nixon? It's at the same time. I, I, uh, How did that work? Because the amazing thing with Lost is it's this sort of iconic role, not role particularly at all, but, but couple that I'm a part of. Uh, right. But it's actually only, I'm only in. I don't even know. You will know better than I do. 12, 14 episodes out somewhere of in this low teens, seasons. Somewhere, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I really only fly in and out of Hawaii. I mean, I did Tell Me You Love Me and Frost Nixon while I did Lost. So Lost spans years and I oh, have wow. this whole other career that's going on while I do Lost. Um, so I go to, I go and do Frost Nixon on Broadway, uh, which is both an amazing experience and a terrible one all at the same time. It's... How so? Because the clue is in the title. It it is a play about oh, Frost right. and Nixon and not a play right. about uh David Frost's girlfriend. At all, it turns no. out. No, just the one scene. Uh and that's a very, very long night to listen to Frank Langella. Um and only have one scene. Particularly I think this is the main thing. I think if you've I'd just come off Tell Me You Love Me, where I'd had so much to do and had been so it had been so um, sort of word of the day, but rigorous in terms of showing up and working and thinking and feeling and prepping. And it, it was just a sort of immersive role. And then to get Frost Nixon, and it was my first play here because you have to have a green card to do theatre here. You can't just right. have uh, an, uh, um, what's it called? A visa. visa. And I just got my green card. And so it felt very exciting to sort of christen it with this big role for this big play. Um, and I felt like I was supposed to feel very, very lucky. And I did for about a week. And then about into week two of rehearsal, I was like, well, I kind of cracked this scene. Like, I'm not I'm not quite sure where else to dig. And if I had mm. just got off the boat and got this, if I were fresh out of Oxford or drama school, this would be enormous. But I have been doing this for a while. I have paid my dues. I am well into my 30s. I, I, this is not enough. And that felt a hard thing to come to terms with because to sort of get over the shame and the guilt of feeling like this wasn't enough and, and wrestling, is this just ego? Uh, what is this? And then just coming to the place of like, no, there's no ego here. This just isn't enough. There is not enough for me to do. Um, so I think I'm the only person in history who has left um, left a play that just won the Tony uh, and asked asked to leave it. Uh, 
I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. So it, what are the, go ahead. No, not at all. Just that I, 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 I left. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd be shocked if you're the only uh I feel like that's a, I feel like Nicole Williamson probably did something like that at one point, right? right? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not I'm sure, sure there's a I'm sure there's there's other people who have, who have done that. I've got friends who have done incredibly small roles on Broadway, like one scene roles like that mm-hmm. and they come out for their bow and they can sense that feeling from the audience of like, wait a second, I'm supposed to know this guy. Oh, right, right from a couple yeah, of hours yeah, ago. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's just, and that's a that's got to be a weird feeling. It's a hard one. It's a hard yeah. one because because everything points to this being a highlight of your career, and yet your experience internally is entirely at odds with how it is being experienced by everybody else, and that that's always a a tricky one. To say nothing of the fact that you are, you know, paying to live in New York City, the most expensive city in the United States. Also that. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's I, I understand where that would be uh, uh, a, a daunting prospect. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, you could, yeah. Um, so as I was saying, there's been this shift over the past um, six or seven years, this, this wonderful awakening at, uh, and I would never in a million years bring up your age first, but since you have, <laughs> since 40... Um, there has been this shift towards characters with much more agency mm. and much more um, uh, uh, power. Um, and I want to talk about um, Molly on For All Mankind. Mm. Did you, was this a, did you audition for this? Or was I this did. Offer? No, I was no. going to say, I don't know, I, 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 there's nothing in your resume to suggest like, oh, she's a super badass fire pilot. No, does it not not an obvious choice. Uh no, it was well, weirdly I'm going to step it back because the first gig I did really after having my babies was uh the person sort of big significant thing was the Shonda Rhimes show The Catch in which I played I was cast as a sort of uh, you know Crow- Peter Krause's loyal-ish girlfriend. The a new showrunner Alan Heinberg comes in, takes all the cast he's been given, and turns takes a checkerboard and makes it into a chess game. Basically, is is asked to take all his cast and rewrite and reconfigure an entire pilot, and makes me into this femme fatale, uh, high heel wearing mastermind super criminal and i caught an episode at one point where you were um and this was not during my homework this was while the show was on i watched an episode where you were asking somebody for dick pics and sure. i was like Sonia. <laughs> sure uh, that that was yes that that was just a sort of that yes as a random sample of things i could have asked for on that show um <laughs> so it but it was an amazing and significant part of my career, not in necessarily like, oh, it was the apogee of all the great stuff I've worked on, but that role, Margot, was a really important part, I think, of me stepping out of certainly domesticity, breastfeeding, and raising two small children, um, but also sort of arriving as as the next iteration of me in some way. And so being a badass who hid in the back of cars with a revolver and somehow walked in heels all felt improbable and yet somehow like yes exactly this is this is this is actually who i have been waiting in some ways to become has been not 
this sexualized figure so much, but this fully realized person who belongs to nobody, certainly isn't Peter Krause's girlfriend anymore, is nobody's wife, is nobody's girlfriend, stands entirely on her own two feet in these heels. And that felt like a very cool um, uh, discovery and, and like I'd arrived no, I remember being very fullness. pleasantly surprised at watching it at like this level of strength and independence. And it was then that I started to notice like, oh yeah, you know, she's always been cast, not cast, but always been characterized in relation to a man. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the I only reference Margot because I had to pass through Margot in order to get to Molly, I think, in a way. like Who's a different kind of badass. Who's absolutely the antithesis in that when I, when I got the sides for Molly, they were just one, it was just one scene. And in caps was written, do not wear makeup. Do you and and my agent sort of rang to re-emphasize this? They were like, dress as down as you possibly can. Too many people have apparently missed the mark on this, thinking, oh well, they mean dowdy pilot, but Hollywood dowdy or whatever, you know. Right, so right, I right. really did. I rolled out of bed. I put on a green shirt, which brought out the delightful bags under my eyes, and I uh, just went in. And I loved this. Just off the one scene, here was this sort of seemingly tight-lipped but also um unapologetic badass sassy uh it's not even that she thinks she's as good as a man it's that it's, it's sort of unquestionable to her that she's better than most of them and anyway so i got the role and what, I, do you remember what the scene was yeah it's a scene where she and baldwin are actually on their way to space and uh she's sort mm -hmm. of it's it's probably episode four of season one i think yeah and um she gets him there in bunks and she actually gets him to open up and and talk a bit about uh his relationship with his son and she teases him she lets him sort of seduces him as it were into confiding and then in a sort of typical Molly way, punctures his uh, sentimentality or his aggrandized sense of who he is, uh, but with sort of love as well. Um, anyway, it was it's a lovely scene and, and it came out well when we finally shot it, but it's just such a great, great role. I, I Molly is up there with one of my favorite roles I've ever played in my career. It really, I just adore her. There's an incredible scene right before the one you're talking about where you're at dinner um, with your two uh, uh, shipmates. Yes. And it becomes abundantly clear that you have seniority at the table after, and you, you sit there. It's actually a great comedic straight man scene for you too, because you're just being, listening to these guys just being so patronizing mm. and just so talking down to you and you make it very clear that you've got more flight hours than they do or what have you. Mm. And it's, it was so fun watching you just own a room like that. It was really, really oh. exciting. The makeup thing, the makeup thing is, is weird because there is a reference when you are first, um, when you were first uh, referred to, you're, you're uh, viewed as not wholesome enough. And um, 
somebody makes a, uh, a, to my mind, a needlessly cruel reference that you are more Danny Thomas than Marlo Thomas. Um, I've sent letters to Apple TV. That's between <laughs> me and there. That's, I mean, I'll, I'll take care of that on my own time. I don't even know why I brought it up. But, um, that was weird. The, um, uh, I want to talk for a moment about accents. We talk a lot about accents on this show. Mm. And you're, um, you've always been really good. I remember you being not the lone British actor on Flash Forward, mm. but my favorite American accent on Flash Forward. <laughs> and again, don't have to name anybody. I will say he's gotten better in the ensuing years. Um, but, but what... Is that really, do you just have a good ear? Is it really technical for you? I have a good ear. I think it really helps if you're, um, uh, you know, my dad was from Argentina, so I grew up bilingual. I speak fluent Spanish. I speak good French. I have a good ear for accents. I do. Um, uh, For years, I would go and see a coach, uh, Jessica Drake, and I worked together for many, many years. If I had any kind of regional accent to perfect, I would... I, I mean, I would hire her again in a minute. I'm not brave enough to go it alone. But I do, uh, yeah, I can do a sort of standard American, I think. Where, um, where is Molly? But Molly's not doing standard American. Where's Molly from? She's from the South. She's got, I throw in some Southern, but only, oddly, only because of where, you know, the whole thing takes place in Houston or, Texas, yeah. or on the moon. So I feel like even... Um, that it becomes sort of inevitable that you would pick up some of the inflections of it, just hanging out with that many people at NASA and in the bar and all of that, that none of us are impervious to picking up that. So I, even though Molly is not from Houston, I, I give her, and even when she's talking to other characters, sometimes I'll let her lean into their accent a little more because... Because the way I, people do, the, the way, way Americans do with you. Right, exactly, right? <laughs> I, I feel like that, I don't know. I just, it felt like a, a, a more interesting thing to do than just uh, giving her a standard American accent. Well, it's funny because British actors will tend to break America into three three sections, hmm. which is just your standard uh, broadcast uh, anchor person, mm-hmm. no regionalism. Brooklyn and the enormous South. <laughs> and those are the three states we have here in America. Your, your we point have, is? We have, we have West Journalism, Brooklyn, and the South. <laughs> I see and, absolutely no problem with that map. That sounds fun <laughs> to me. Um, and it's and it's it's funny too because these are the these are the trained guys I'm talking about. These are the guys with the training who are like, oh yeah, absolutely. I've done Clifford Odets. I understand America. I'm like, well, no, hang on. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, it, no, it, well, this is why you have to have someone who's got like Jessica is so meticulous. Like if I take her a character, there is, I I I had to audition for something. I think it was a year or two ago and she was she was Russian spoke English with a strong Russian accent and 
I can do it well enough to like tell my kids a story and get wide eyes from them, but not well enough to fucking put it off in an audition for a movie that I really actually want. So I, so I, so that I, will be good. Yes. Right. So yeah. I, so I paid good money to take this to Jessica and be like, all right, help me out here. Jessica wanted to know where in Odessa this person was from so that she could pull up the exact right bit of tape for me. And I'm like, Oh dude, you mistake, you mistake me for someone who gives a shit about where in Odessa she's, I just want the job, my friend. So just give me the accent that will get me the job. Anyway, immaculate accent, still no job story of my life. (laughs) Um, It's, I mean, I, a part of me is like, that sounds ridiculous, but there's a difference between Queens and Brooklyn. Yep. There is a, uh, a, and I can't do it. I grew up in New York city and I can't do the difference between Queens and Brooklyn. Queens is a very weird thing. That is, there's some Connecticut that sneaks in there. It's very strange. Um, you still can't, you can't, that's such a tease. You're not going to give me a little Queens accent now. I, I, I really, I, I myself have a, I have a standard Brooklyn that I can do that is, if absolutely, like, I, when I'm, for instance, playing a, a, a transit worker on CSI New York, I can do this kind of thing real easy. I can come in and out of it, no big. Uh, but, but Queens has a lilt to it that having been born in Rigo Park, I cannot quite summon. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I have, uh, I have CSI New York suspect accent. That's my dialect. <laughs> That's so good. I have a very solid CSI in New York. I could be, I have, I could be interrogated for three minutes by Gary Sinise and it sounds fine. <laughs> it sounds fine. Hey, fun, um, fun fact. I, I was supposed to play Gary Sinise's therapist in CSI New York. I was originally, really? yes, in the pilot, he was cast, he was cast, he was not cast, he was an integral part of it. I was cast and we in fact shot the scene where I play his therapist. He's... Oh, was it the deal was his, his wife had died, died on 9-11? 9/11. Exactly. Right. And so he's in there and it's just me and him on what feels like a theatre set and just a little glass of water between us. And I have this beautiful two-hander with Gary Sinise and it's really beautiful writing. It's like proper writing and um and uh perhaps unsurprisingly uh, word came back that nobody wants to see gary sinise cry so they dropped him going to therapy and asked me if i would stay on to be the lady that looked at test tubes or something so that's what i did so anyway apparently gary was like well keep her around so he kept me around as a girl in a lab coat so i kept i made my rent so i'm very grateful for that I found him very welcoming. He was really, uh, they had not started airing yet. It was only the fourth or fifth uh, resume, but he was one of those actors who like, oh, guest work is scary. Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming to play with us. And I, I that those little gestures uh, mean the world. Don't they? I agree. Uh, yeah. He, he's, he's a, he was really cool as a, as a number one on a call sheet. Yeah. You know, he was like. It was one of those things where, like, if you're the guest star, that makes him the host star. Yes. And he, uh, he, he stepped up to that, I thought, in a really nice way. I agree. Um, so we're talking about, uh, I, he's transcended now. He was a character actor who then ended up number one on a bunch of call sheets. But were there character actors you, you grew up watching where you're like, oh, that's a fun career. I should, I'd like to do that. Uh, I mean, I, I think probably my whole life, the person I've loved most is Judy Dench. I I yeah. just I look at her and I'm like that's a career that's a career I would want. Uh, it's so much more diverse than Americans realize her career. Oh, I totally. Think, I we, mean, I grew up. She with comes her in watching... to play like 
as Go ahead. No, I just I grew up watching her on a sitcom. I mean, she was as time goes by. Exactly. I love that you know this, John. This is why you are. This is just you're perfect. Anyway, it's a it's a straight ahead multicam sitcom, and she's fantastic on it. And we just lost the guy who played her husband a couple of years ago. What was his name? Exactly. Uh, uh, what the fuck is that guy's name? You'll He's tell so me in a minute. Good. There. Um. We'll, we'll we'll cut this vital vital uh, information. Wow. Did I just rush type that? That looks like <laughs> Welsh. Is Tim Gilbacher? Yeah, 13 years. She did that up until 2005 she was still doing that show. Right. Um, Jeffrey Palmer. Jeffrey Palmer. There we go. He's, That's his name. They, they were so wonderful in it. I don't know. I just look at that and, and then you think about, you know, the movies she's done and then M and I don't know that. Sally She's... Bowles in Cabaret in the West End. Um, Madame Armfelt in Little Night Music. In there the West we go. End. That was the one I was thinking of, Little Night Music. I kept thinking Nightingale, Night, Night, Night. Anyway, Little Night Music. She's. She, I just think she's miraculous. And I, the the quiet intelligence and humor in her, the, the twinkle in her eye, um, you can't, it just doesn't age, that part. That twinkle is, is with her regardless of her age. And... Her looks have felt incidental to who she is. I I think she's probably, in terms of someone that I've thought of for years and years and years, and and sort of envied in many ways. Not envied, aspired to. I think Judy Dench, um, and also her range, the the comedy, and the empathy of her, and the quiet mastery of her. I think she's extraordinary. You ever see Iris? Yes, of course. Broke, oh my, God. Broke my heart over and over devastating and over. in that movie. Yeah. She plays the poet Iris Murdoch and she starts to slip into dementia in the film and it's and the the descent from this incredibly lucid articulate woman into this like woman child is just I've seen that movie exactly once. I have no intention of seeing it again. It's shattering. Yeah, it is. But it's one of those like it's one of those like, well, that's a great movie. Never again. Never I'm all again. Set. Thank Did you. Did that? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. No, I think, I think, uh, yes, Judy Dench, and then in terms of contemporaries, I Julianne Nicholson, I think, is uh, not only, I mean, incidentally, a dear friend, but also an actor whose work I look at am am over and over am utterly floored by her talent. I just I find it astonishing. She's great. We, um, uh, she, <laughs> I was joking earlier about how like everyone's schedule is so open. We can't nail down Julianne. Sure. We're having a hell of a time over there. <laughs> having a hell of a time over there. Gotta tell you, that's, uh, that's been a tricky get. She's a tricky um, one right now. She's so in demand yeah. and she's on summer holiday. So yeah, she might be tough for a little bit, but you'll get her eventually. Um, but yeah, she's a, um, she's a, a delight. Mm. Um, and she's, uh, I kind of wish she got to do more comedy julianne because she's really funny and she's really dry mm. and i i think she's got those big expressive eyes that people want to put tears in so often i agree i think scared from your lips to god's ears i think she's dying to be in something where she isn't just bearing her soul and opening a vein <laughs> on camera uh so yes yeah i'd love to not be threatened by a, a gangster for a moment and just land a couple jokes that'd be nice, that'd be nice. i wish that for her yeah sure <laughs> 
Sonia Walker, you're a goddamn delight. Thank you so much for doing this. You're so welcome. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um, We can get your yeah. podcast bookish wherever we get podcasts. That's right. Season three will probably actually be out by the time this one uh, this one drops. Uh, so I encourage the listener to, yeah, uh, end of August to, we'll be out. to get in there. And uh, thanks so much for coming to play. You're so welcome. Thank you. And that is an episode wrap on Sonia Walger. You can find her on social media at Sonia Walger Official on Instagram. You can also check out at Bookish with Sonia on Instagram. That's for her podcast, which again, I seriously recommend. It's it's a series of great interviews about books. She's also at Sonia Walger on Twitter. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? <laughs>